Hello and welcome to this episode of the p e Podcast. My name is Jack Jacob and I am your host. In this episode, I'm joined by Stephen Chamberlain, who's the Chief Executive of the Active Learning Trust, who are a multi-academy trust made up of 21 schools. Stephen and I start the conversation where he describes how he broke his family tradition of becoming a builder to instead become an educator via his passion for music. Stephen, throughout the episode, reflects on really what being a leader means to him and how this has ultimately changed and still continues to change throughout his career. He discusses his status as an active and advocate of Twitter and how he feels it's really important that people see the human side to him as the CEO of the trust, both within his organisation and within the industry. Please do enjoy this episode as we get to know the person behind the job title. Hi everyone, before we get into this conversation with Stephen, just want to give a shout out to the episode sponsor, Guide Teacher Development. Guide Teacher Development provides accredited training courses, CPD and other best practice expertise to hundreds of schools across the UK. What's different about Guide Teacher Training and rather timely given the current global situation is that 100% of the training they deliver is delivered online and has been since 2017. Their revolutionary online platform designed by an Ofsted outstanding former head teacher can help every single member of a school staff to develop their career all training content is available in one place at any time and accessible anywhere on any device. Guy Teacher Development provides fully accredited expert training that is effective, engaging and evidenced. It dramatically reduces the cost of face-to-face training programs whilst being easier for staff to complete in their own time, yet still trackable by school senior leadership teams. To find out more, please visit www.guideteachertraining.com. So Stephen, you're very active on social media, um, particularly Twitter. Um, as well as LinkedIn. Did you know that you've tweeted 29,000 times? Uh, I don't really keep a tally on it, but yeah, I'm not surprised. Um, <laughs> I, I, I try and get on there um, a little bit of personal stuff, um, a little bit, you know, a lot of work stuff, uh, a lot of what's going on in the schools. Um, and yeah, I had to debate about do you do the personal stuff or not, but actually sometimes I think it's nice just for people to see the human side of the CEO as well. Um, so I keep it or family, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's just sometimes nice to get to know uh, the person who's actually the CEO as an individual and as a family man, not just as the professional. Definitely, definitely. So what, why is it important to you that? I think because actually sometimes a CEO, particularly if you're a large trust, can be quite a distant person. Yeah. Um, and we've got over a thousand employees. When I go into schools, I don't get to meet everybody. Um, but I think it's really important to kind of have some way of communicating with them. So actually, there's quite a lot of people who are in my organisation that follow me on Twitter who yeah. kind of know me. So at the moment, there's a number of staff I've never met. Um, but during lockdown periods, we've kind of been communicating, sharing things over Twitter in a way that we wouldn't get to do normally. So actually, social media for me is quite a good way of actually just kind of staying in touch uh, with staff that I wouldn't normally get to be in touch with and just have a different kind of relationship with them as well as their own sort of professional relationship. Yeah, it makes sense. I, mean, I think it's quite forward thinking. And actually, you know, you're able to then address a message quickly on mass, um, um, which is also, you know, um, one of the major things. But I think you're definitely right about getting your personality out there. Um, and so you're not just this robotic name above a door type thing um uh, and and people know who you are so so yeah so talk to me about um so let's go back to the start so so where did you grow up what was what's your childhood like 
all right, okay. <laughs> so this, this, depending on your football allegiances, this either goes really well or really badly. Okay. So I grew up in Tottenham. Well, I'm a Tottenham fan, so there we go. We're going to get out on like a house on fire. Yeah. Perfect. I, I, you have that kind of sit for the silence. She <laughs> yeah. is coming next. Um, so I grew up, uh, I went to the local primary school. My dad is, uh, is a builder. Uh, in fact, I'm about the only family, a member of my family who's not a builder. Um, so my daddy's brothers are all in the building trade. My grandfather was a builder. Mum worked in kind of local offices and stuff. Um, and I went to, to an inner London comprehensive school. Um, and we had a small end of Terrace House. Um, and what got me into education really was music. So when I was at primary school, um, at the local authority um, asked to try it on instruments. I started out about nine or ten on a cello. Yeah, got quite good at it. So um, by the time I got to secondary school, I was ready to go to a, a conservatoire on Saturday mornings, and I started mixing with different groups of people. So you know, um, from Tottenham to kind of <clears throat> Muswell Hill, Highgate, um, playing in different orchestras and. Uh, music was a real kind of, uh, I guess nowadays we'd call it a kind of social enabler, social mobility, yep. uh, that gave me that wider perspective. And actually it's the thing that got me to school because when you kind of live just outside Broadwater Farm, you go over, uh, my grandparents lived on Broadwater Farm, so I spent a lot of time ducking and diving, uh, being quite streetwise, which when you've got a cello on your back, is not always easy. Uh, <laughs> you are a bit of a target. Um, so, you know, I think for me, that was the, the, the starting point and that's really what got me into education. Yeah. And actually, because my own school experience was, shall we say, interestingly tough, um, I've always looked for schools where I feel that actually I can go in and make a difference. Yeah. Um, and make sure that schools are, are not running quite the way they were in when I went to school in the 1970s and 80s. Yeah, makes sense. So was you academic when you was growing up then? Kind of. I was kind of, um, I mean, I don't want to stereotype, I was probably a very typical boy and I was quite, quite capable, but quite lazy. Yeah. Um, and because I was into music, not much else really kind of got, you know, got me engaged. So I it was music, you was full in. And if it was, a, a, you know, maths, then not so much. Yeah. And then, yeah. You, know, you know what did it was actually a music teacher. When I decided, I decided fairly early on what I wanted to do was actually teaching in, in, in a classroom. And that started when I was probably about uh, what we used to call fourth and fifth year, year 10 and 11. Yeah. Um, where I'd started doing, my music teacher asked me to go and help with some of the younger classes. And I kind of really liked doing that. It was, it was really, I found it really interesting. So I said I wanted to be a music teacher. He went, right, well, they stop messing about and start doing some maths and English because if you want to be a teacher, you're going to have to do, you're going to have to pass. Yeah. Uh, and that was the first time I went, all oh, right, maybe I need to do something else. <laughs> sure. So you must have been playing at quite a high level of music at that age to, to then be teaching it. Yeah, I was doing a little, I was doing quite good, um, but you know, at, at that particular point in Haringey, Haringey paid for your lessons, Haringey paid for your, uh, for your instruments, um, the Haringey had fantastic uh, orchestras, and so actually there was a lot of people like me who'd come up through early on in primary school, um, and you know, we were taken away during you know, Keep Us Out of Mischief, taken to um, the Hudi menu, menu in school in the summer holidays or at half terms. We were playing in national chamber music competitions. So uh, you've got a completely different side from kind of ducking and diving around the kind of, uh, shall we say, the kind of lively atmosphere of Tottenham in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, yeah. And going and playing in, in, in major concert halls in London. So, yeah, it was that, but it, it became the kind of the thing I did. 
And then I realized I had to do other things like maths and English and sciences and all the other stuff. So that was the time I eventually put some effort in, but probably like right at the last minute um, yeah. to get enough O-levels as they were in my day to, to be able to move on. Makes sense. So do you think that's quite rare? Because I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do when I grew up. Um, I, I probably didn't even know what necessarily, obviously I knew what an event was, but I didn't know the ins and outs or, or certainly that there was a business to business conferences and exhibitions and so on and so forth. So you wanted to be a teacher and, and work in the educational system from a young age. Yeah, I kind of worked out why I didn't want to do. Um, yeah. So from a very young age, uh, myself and my cousins, my dad would take us on the building site. So I'd finish doing stuff on a Saturday musically and then have to go and knock up muck. Uh, <laughs> didn't like getting your hands dirty, no? No. And, you know, if we had to do, if he was working in the summer holidays, I'd have to go on the building site with him as a labourer, not cement around, carry bricks, do this kind yeah. of stuff. So I worked out that whilst he loves doing that, that's, you know, or weathers, likes being outside, typical builder, just in a vest, all temperatures. Yeah, yeah, shorts and a vest. Yeah, I hate yeah. it. So, I, and he said, my dad, in our family, you either went to work and earned your money or, you know, you didn't. So I yeah. worked out that if I didn't find something to do that I liked, then at 16, I'd be doing what he was doing. Yeah. And to earn a living. So that spurred me on a little bit to kind of you know, get engaged. Makes sense. Makes sense. So um, that's, that's really interesting. And in, term, in terms of your kind of journey so far, so you, you started in te teaching music yeah, and you've ultimately worked your way up to, you know, ultimately the, the top job that you can get um, in the educational system or within, within schools. And, and okay. now you're the CEO of a, a map that has 21 schools. Um, and I suppose probably back then the top, the top job you could have had was a head teacher, right? There was no yeah, such thing as maths. No, I mean, I went through the usual thing from being a kind of uh, music teacher, head of music, head of performing arts, um, went through the senior thing of being an assistant head. And then I was, uh, when the, the names changed, to vice principal for teaching and learning. And I got my first secondary headship back in kind of 2005. Yeah. Was, you know, pre multi academy trust that was a local authority school in Harlow, tough school. Um, and I wanted a tough school, it was a school that was about to go into an Ofsted category, so that really appealed to me. Um, and you know, that was four and a half, five years of kind of quite hard work, <laughs> um, yeah. getting this all out. Um, and then the, this was around kind of 2008 9 when the academies movement started, and I yeah. started as the first, um, in those days, rare title and executive head. Um, of job of bringing two schools, um, challenging schools together in Clacton. Um, and it was about 1,900 children between the two schools. Um, a SARS to C were about 13, 14%. It had a wow. 1.5 million in year deficit. Um, there was 360 odd staff. Um, and actually, the schools were kind of, they were PFI schools, so there were significant financial challenges. Um, and it was with one of the first big multi-academy trusts in the 2008-9 uh, period when, when you became an academy, it's because your school was actually at the bottom end. Right, okay. <clears throat> um, at that point, it wasn't until, until 2009-10 under the Conservatives that you could convert to be an academy and be outstanding. Uh, you know, these were the sponsored academies in the early days. So um, basically, it was, it was the whole premise of it. You know, you had a, a cluster of schools, ultimately. You had some in there that were almost leading the way and, and were the example yeah. and they basically absorbed schools that weren't doing so well to, to teach them their way of running. 
Absolutely. So we had a, a school that was outstanding. We had the head of that school who'd been, uh, David Triggs, had been a national leader of education, turned around a number of schools, um, had taken on three schools, of which we were two that were being merged together. Um, and that's how it kind of started for me in the kind of multi-academy trust world. So um, during that time, I went from running kind of two schools when they got to being um, you know, successful. Um, I then put in a, a head of school and I took on some more schools. So by the time I finished doing that, I think I was at that point back in 2014, 15, overseeing about 15 schools um, right. of education. And yeah. it was a of primary, secondary, and special schools. Uh, you know, sure. Real, real kind of difference for me starting off as a secondary music teacher and then having to kind of work around primaries and special schools as well. Well, I was going to ask about that. So, you know, the I can I can imagine that you know a lot of the 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 teachers that have gone on to become heads of departments or or, or not necessarily heads of departments but head teachers and and more senior than that would probably come from more of your you know, your maths, your English, your science type backgrounds. Was it hard for you to instill credibility as a senior leader coming from what could could have been seen? And I'm not saying that I see it this way, but what could have been seen a bit of a fluffy um, department, you know, with performing yeah. arts, with music and so on? Certainly on in the early part of my career when I was kind of applying for, for headships, it was, well, you know, your, your yeah, music departments are fairly small, so have you had an experience of running a large department? Um, when I was a faculty head, I was overseeing five departments, which included like PE, art, drama, but yeah, it's still the arts though, isn't it, et cetera. Um, it wasn't until I became a deputy and was responsible for uh, teaching and learning across the school that that kind of credibility started to come. Um, but, you know, one of the things about being a musician is you, when you run a music department, you have loads and loads of visiting staff, you run loads and loads of events, if you're any good, you're running loads of concerts. Um, I was musically directing productions at quite a high level, bringing in some of my West End mates to kind of play in the orchestras. Sounds more fun than anything. Yeah, but if you're, <laughs> you know, part of my training is a conductor, so you have to be good at leading, good at organising, good at working with people, good at logistics all that kind of stuff. So those kind of skills that you have in the arts and that ability to communicate is what leadership is about. So you can be great as a scientist and whatever, but if you can't get in there and work with people and build the relationships and communicate, and so, you know, it's, it's those other skills uh, as well as your academic ability that really count. Sure. So, so on that note, then what, what does leadership mean to you then? What, what, what defines a good leader? You know, it's, it changes because actually there's a, there's a lot of I've learned about myself as a leader. Um, and I think the older I get, the more I reflect on what it means to be a leader. Um, probably when I was younger, I was a bit much more of your command and control. I thought, actually, you know, you go in, you run the department, uh, you set the bar. And I'm not saying you don't do that, but actually there's very much a kind of uh, control, control mechanism. Sure. Um, sometimes when a school's in trouble as a head, you go in and actually it's quite directive. Um, because you need things to change really, really quickly. Um, what I had to learn to do was to be able to delegate and distribute leadership a bit more. And yep. I think what I've learned over the, the last, you know, this is my second time as a CEO, and you know, what I learned in the first time and as an executive head is you have to learn to trust people. And actually what really, really works, you can tell when the organisation is motoring, is when you trust them, but you empower them. And, you know, that's an easy word to say. Empower them doesn't mean just give them stuff to do and let them go. It means do some talent spotting, find the best people in your organization, harness that energy, and then let them, let them go. Keep How do you spot them? 
you know, it's different because it's different. Sometimes people have got great skills, but they're in the wrong job. So, you know, they're frustrated because they're in this box. And actually, you suddenly see them do stuff and go, actually, you'd be really, really good at doing this. So for a lot of the time for me is a lot of dialogue with people, a lot of coaching, a lot of getting to know the key players. Um, you know, I still get inspired by, you know, going into, into schools and seeing some of the amazing stuff um, teachers do. So we've just, this, you know, I've been with uh, ALT six months. The first thing I wanted was a talent and capacity register. So we're out of a thousand employees, teaching staff and support staff is our talent. Where's the best business manager? Where's the best facilities person? Let's build that into a, into a framework that says, how do we build the capacity of the organization with these people? But then how do we grow them? Okay, yeah. So how do we put in the support? Because it's no good asking people to do stuff without actually then helping them and growing them and developing them. So part of our people strategy is to do that talent finding and start to grow our own through that. And we're working with, you know, we've harnessed the use of things like the apprenticeship levy to get people who would never get onto kind of master's courses because they're too expensive. And we've got seven just running through this year um, within the first six months. Uh, and that includes some of our business managers who are doing kind of yeah, management apprenticeship, that kind of stuff. Um, it's not costing the trust anymore because it's part of our levy. But using those, yeah, just being creative with the resources and then giving people the opportunity is, is what leadership is all about. Because you can't run an organization by kind of doing it all from the top. And actually, for me, what I think I, I've, I've worked out is that certainly as a Mac CEO, it's about that servant leadership model. You know, you're at the bottom here, um, not this way down. And actually, it's your job to kind of support people by growing the organisation that way. So our job is to serve uh, as well as to lead. Almost like a, the root of a tree. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, we're the foundations that help their tree flourish. Yeah. You know, those foundations right, uh, and you don't nourish those foundations, then actually the rest of it withers. So it's really important for me that we, you know, whichever metaphor you use, whether it's trees or whatever it is, that you know, we, are, we are serving the people that actually uh, make the organisation work, have a value, and enable it to grow and flourish. Sure, sure. No, that's a really nice way of, of putting it. And yeah, have you have you had any leaders then that have really stuck in your mind and, and perhaps their style, perhaps the way that they, their people management skills or whatever it might be, have you had that person in, in, in your career that stuck with you? Yeah, I've had, when I was uh, in my first um, leadership role um, and, and, and very much in my second leadership role, I had heads who were probably the best description, comfortable in their own skins. So they were good leaders, they knew they were good leaders, and a bit like me, they were, they would, you know, picked me out and went, actually, I think this, this chap could do something, so let's give him some opportunities. And so I've kind of, I took that on board as, as kind of paying back, or paying forward. Um, you know, the, the kind of the opportunities I was given is something that I should be doing for other people in the profession. Um, and I've also, you know, I worked out that, you know, people say, well, how have you turned, you know, when we've turned the school around, have you managed to do that? What did you do? So I didn't do anything. I'm just surrounded by really, really good people. Um, and if I've got any talent, it's, it's finding good people who do really good things, harnessing their energy and then letting them make it happen. Uh, and that's really how kind of, you know, my view of leadership works is that actually, you know, where leadership works is where you're bright enough to surround yourself with people who are brighter than you yeah. um, and, and can, can drive the organization forward. Sure. And, and, and that's actually the thing a, a, a lot of leaders say is around, you know, it's about hiring people that are better than you, um, better than you in certain things. Right. Um, because if they're better than you, they'd, they'd be doing your job. Um, yeah. 
so so you know do do you do you do a lot of self-reflection and really understand where your skills lack yeah i think so i mean and i think i've probably got better than that i think when you're a young head of department for maybe in your first headship you kind of think you know everything and i've worked out actually you can't know everything you just need to know the people who do know what you don't know yeah and so when i'm recruiting when i was first became a head there's a tendency to want to pick people like yourself you know because you go oh, yeah we, we get on really well yeah that's what i learned fairly early. i don't need another me okay what i need is something different um people with different skills different ways of looking at it people who will i will find a challenge you know not people who are just going to go yes Stephen, that's fine let, let's do that i need people around me again but why why are we doing that and people who are who are prepared to to have a debate, uh, a discussion, uh, and really challenge my thinking. Not uh, yet, not yes, men and women, basically. No, absolutely yeah. not. And I think it's really important not to be surrounded by people who just tell you what you want to hear. It just becomes an echo chamber. So yeah. you know, it's really important to pick the right people to have around you with the right skill sets. The skill set that you have to be able to do is to manage them. <laughs> yeah. Do you think there's a difference between management and leader leadership? Yeah, totally. And you know, I can give you this kind of, you know, the, the, the textbook answers, you know, you know, managers manage things and leaders manage people. Uh, every, I think we ask this at every headship interview, you know, what's the difference between leadership and management, etc. Right. Uh, and if they've all been on their MPQH courses, you just get the, the textbook answer. You, you like know. the textbook answer or does that annoy you? No, it just, uh, well, you know, it ticks the box because, you know, they've done that bit of the, the course. But what I'm really looking for is the kind of um, the personal thing. What is it that you do? That, that you know makes that work so you know what is that difference you still have to be a, a manager to some extent because you have to drive systems and processes and you have to understand them so it's no good me going in and arguing with the secondary head about their curriculum unless i understand how to construct a curriculum a timetable and all that kind of stuff uh, equally i can't go in and argue with somebody about their budget it's if i don't understand how to do a budget so you've still got to have the technical skills and the managerial skills um, but the leadership skill is about how you win hearts and minds. And actually, you can teach people the curriculum stuff and the budget stuff. Uh, what you can't always teach them is how to win hearts and minds. And I think that's the difference for me. Is, you know, how do you conduct yourself? What values do you display in how you work? That means people want to go with you. Uh, and for me, that's that real test about leadership is, is, you know, how do you work with people to get the best out of them um, and you know, put your own ego aside. Um, and if you're doing it really well, it's all about the reflective glory. It's not about what you do. It's what about everybody does. And, and if you're doing it really well, they forget you did anything. You know, they've did it, done it themselves. And that's a really powerful message about leadership. Sure. Makes sense. Makes sense. So, so on that front, then, you know, you've been leading your organization through a global pandemic um uh, a, a situation that as far as i'm aware schools haven't had to shut before have they no the occasion we get the occasional snow days that's yeah. about it <laughs> that's, that's traumatic enough you know that i don't i don't miss the being up at three or four o'clock in the morning you know phoning all the other heads going is it snowing where you are you going to close it's i don't miss any of that uh yeah, yeah, yeah. park headship that i'm glad i've parked um i just hear it from 21 heads all trying to make that decision yeah. um but no, we've not had to face anything that's as serious as that. And, and we've not had to adapt as quickly as we've had to do in this particular circumstance. Indeed. And, well, you know, it's, it's a completely unique situation. that There's no textbook to, to say, right, this is how it should be run and so on. So, you know, how challenging has it been? And, and, and what have you done that you're kind of proud of in this, in this, this kind of period? 
Yeah, I think for us, the, there's two things that I'm really pleased we've done. So the first thing was um, to set up our kind of mental health team to support staff, because actually for some of them, this is a real culture shock. You know, they're not used to working from home. It's never been part of, you know, whilst it might happen in another industry, it doesn't happen in teaching. You normally have to be in there where the kids are. Yeah. So, yeah. Having so you mean your, your love, is this your home office, I assume? It is, yeah, yeah. So you you have this all set up, but you don't. Do you work from home often or not? Not very often, no. I like to be kind of where it's all happening. So yeah, uh, if I have to work at home, it's reluctantly. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've got a lovely office for 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 one that's not not used too much. Well, I have I have a wife who's a teacher and two daughter, teenage daughters, so this isn't solely my space. Right, it makes sense. It makes sense. You just had to hijack it for the last ten weeks. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, there's not much of my stuff in here, to be fair. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's that was you know setting that up and getting. A, a, fortunately, we had a, a group of heads and, and staff and both teaching and support who'd done a little bit of work around mental health. So we did some online training with them, got them qualified if they weren't already qualified. And so we have a team dedicated hotline so that staff have immediately had support as they're trying to emotionally deal with that. Mm-hmm. And what we also did was to um, redo all of our um, online, uh, all our professional development all suddenly went online. So we were supposed to be having a national conference on uh, special educational needs. Fortunately, you know, Adam Bodison, who's one of our trustees, is comfortable using tech. So we just said, right, can you do it via Teams or can you do it via Zoom? And you know, 50, 60 people all on doing the same conference. And we've done all of the same with our, um, our oracy work, with our phonics work, all the stuff that was planned, um, both for staff, for governors, for everybody, has all moved online in a way that we would probably have taken much, much longer to do, or it's starting to accelerate stuff and people have now got used to it. And the fact that we're recording sessions, we're using them as part of our virtual learning, um, is a whole new ball game. And you know, we're starting to talk to organizations like uh, Guide to actually make sure that we can now harness all this material we've gathered um, so it doesn't disappear after this is over and actually use it in a constructive way as part of a virtual school uh, and virtual uh, institute for teaching and learning. So that actually a good thing to come out of that is, is new ways of working. So we're pleased we did that. What we also did is, is make sure that we had, um, for the sake of the children and the staff, um, central questionnaires running. So, you know, I reflect as a parent, if a, if a school says to me, you know, are you going to send your child back? I want to know what I'm going to be sending my child back to. So in this, you know, it's not go back to school as it was. It's go back to a new school, a new way of working. So we spent a lot of time working with the heads on what will it look like for children when they come back from the first of June onwards. And what we did was say, right, put that on, into something and then send this questionnaire out. And because it went out across the trust, we immediately got, every time a parent completed it, we had new data. And we put in some questions about how parents were feeling about that. So, you know, do you want your child to come back and, but you're worried? Or do you want your child to come back and you think, actually, no, I think it's safe. Or I want my child to come back, but not yet. So we've been able to harness kind of central data to make some really strategic decisions about what schools need support, what kind of support, um, simple stuff like, you know, how many of you got access to some kind of ICT at home? Um, so no good us you know, pushing out loads of work on, on, on virtual learning environments if no one can get to it. And actually for us, it's around the kind of uh, 91% have their own device up to about 93, 94% have shared devices. So we had a much smaller cohort than we thought that we'd have to kind of find other ways to engage. So for us, that's been a really powerful thing. That, yeah, clever, really clever. Yeah, the central team are able to take some of that 
my, my view was that we have to take the kind of shield the heads from all the all the other stuff you know so i think the phrase that that you know uh, was 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 brought home to me by the heads is kind of we're drowning information and desperate for wisdom um because there's yeah you know, i think dfe put out something like 40 different 46 different changes of guidelines right and heads just can't stay on top of all cool. of that all the time so we said okay we'll take that we'll work through the guidance we'll work with other trusts with other maps um and work out what's the best and then we'll curate it put it into a toolkit for you so you haven't got to work through all that here's the best stuff and we'll help you work through a toolkit and that's what we've done is to kind of make sure that we've become the kind of the umbrella if you like to kind of protect them from from that kind of storm of information and guidance and stuff and then actually filter into something that's usable sure makes sense so what's it what was the the reopening like then the process of doing that because was it a case where you had your maintenance men and and caretakers and so on going around with measuring tapes measuring up classrooms and making you know the maximum we can get in here is is x y and z and so on was it was it was it really like that absolutely because yeah. you know one of the things that we said to all our heads right from the start is we will allow you to make an individual decision because every school is a different size and you know some of the classrooms are tiny some of them are massive um small schools haven't got the resources so if you've only got one of our schools has got 76 children in the whole school right from early years up to year six so actually their way of working is completely different from anyone else's so we've said to all of our heads uh it is up to you to make the decision about when it's right to open and how many children you can take and we will back you on those decisions but you have to go through that process of of doing exactly that measure the tables work out what's safe we'll support you with the risk assessments and what we did was um work with i'm part of a network of ceos with cambridge local authority part of the confederation of school trusts we went through and made sure that we've got some robust risk assessments we added in all the questions that the unions wanted so i think we ended up with a risk assessment that was 17 areas and 175 criteria long for the heads had to work through to tick off before we could take it to the board and go yeah we're comfortable but actually everything changes so more guidance came out we signed them off on the 28th more guidance came out over the weekend um so we had to adapt them over, over the weekend um so they are live and dynamic uh, as guidance comes along uh, and that's the important bit for a trust is that the heads feel that we're doing that work for them um they get a daily briefing from me uh usually you know borrowing bits from um john lewis in cambridge or um confederation school trust who, who produce some amazing kind of information uh and we you know curate that make sure it goes to our head so they're up to date yeah makes sense so it's all it's, it's about that support element right and, and you basically enabling the head teachers to do their job of of kind of running the school on a on a kind of not business as usual because it's not business as usual basically but but you know as as best as best to that yeah i think it's really important that that you know if you're in a multi-academy trust if the trust isn't doing that then why would you be in a trust um you know that's what you're that's what you're there for is yep. to make sure your schools are enabled and if a trust yep. isn't doing all that work to help you do that then it's probably not the right kind of trust yeah i just do you know what percentage schools are split at you know those are in multi-academy trust versus those that aren't in multi-academy trusts no i mean there's quite a lot nationally i'm not sure what the, the current figures are i mean there's still a whole um load of primary schools that are not in in trusts and that they're either single schools um we're kind of in the mid band of, of multi-academy trusts we're not in the kind of 30 plus 
area we're in that kind of mid mid area yeah. you've got an increasing number of very small multi-academy trusts in that kind of three to five um yeah. less so in the five to twelve kind of category yeah. um, but you know the biggest numbers are still primary schools and actually there's quite a lot that are quite isolated primary schools that are kind of you know single form entry out in the in the country is less in the in the towns yeah um, who find it really difficult when these kind of things happen to to get that kind of support unless their local authority is brilliant yeah sure makes sense because you know i think that there can be a perhaps a mis misconception that you know if you work in the educational industry you've kind of you've got blinkers on a little bit in, ter in terms of like the commercial world and and how you know, ultimately regardless of you know you're, you're running a business right and, and a business that serves children um, yeah. um and their parents um and so i can i can see how it would be very very hard for you know the the head teacher that's been head teacher for 10 15 years that's you know been institutionalized within that organization because you know it might be a village and 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 you know, she's a principal of a village school and she lives in the village and she knows all the parents or he knows all the parents or whatever it might be so yeah i, I can see how it would be difficult yeah and it's always been the same in the sector and i think we've moved you know we forget that you know if we take a business model that the whole map world is a kind of fairly nascent business it's you know 10 12 years old um and actually you know people say well you're really you know you've been doing it since 2018 and you know you must know what it's like and i'm like yeah but what what it was the sector was like in 2008 and yeah. what it looked like in 2020 are complete different things and actually you know those early pioneers of people like um, my, my former boss, David Triggs, um, Frank Green, David Carter, you know, Michael Wilkins, all of those people that were kind of probably the pioneers were kind of making it up to some extent as they went along because the, the starting point was deal with schools in challenges. Yep. Politically, it was then, well, you can convert if you're an outstanding school. So the whole kind of premise of, of the academy sector and that kind of notion of privatization um has gone and people still you know we, we sponsor academies and that's a word I, I find really hard because actually there's no money people think sometimes think being in a trust is you're some yeah. kind of cash cow and like so what money are you going to give us we're like we're not going to give you anything okay but there's no extra money um so you can i can see why people are suspicious of that and i think in the early days when you know i, I was there when it was the the map beauty parades where you know i'd be sent out to a to, to a school that was thinking about joining a mat i'd go in do half an hour the next mat would come in after me and eventually somebody would pick and i think we've matured in, in that way and actually you know I, I, we like all trust we would be happily grow but grow in the right places grow with the right schools um yeah go with schools that actually buy into the ethos of the trust, uh, not because actually, you know, we're, we just want to get bigger. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. So, so on that, that growth um, perspective, you know, you was your, your previous role, you was, you was the CEO of CMAT. Um, so is it, was it challenges, Matt? Um, Challenger multi-academy trust. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, they had eight schools. Yes. Uh, there were eight originally and then we amalgamated two. So we had seven. Okay, fine. So, so seven. So, so, um, and you've gone to an um, active land trust now that has 21 schools. So you, yeah. so you, you kind of tripled your amount of schools. Um, did you triple your staff, triple your pupils in that as well? Uh, yeah, so Challenger actually was quite, although there were seven schools, they were quite small schools. So actually the total number of children there was around 3,000 sort of children. Yeah. Um, 
obviously we're, we're a much larger map with different size. Our smallest school is 70 something. Our largest school is 1400. Yeah. Um, we've got 9,500 ish sort of pupils. Right. Um, but I was previously running as a, as a regional director with lots more secondary schools, 15 schools where the pupil number was nearly 11,000. Right. Uh, around 70 million um, across those schools. So I've gone from kind of regional director in a map to setting up a map, which was Challenger, and then kind of you know establishing that and then moving into a much larger mat um would you sense. say you've done that deliberately so you could get the ceo role to then move on to a bigger ceo role in a mat yeah partially i think also like like a lot of leaders you you kind of you know you get to a point where you go actually I'm ready, you know, to take this as a startup here, but actually it now needs somebody else to take it on to the next stage of, of their journey. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm getting kind of, you know, I'll be 55 this kind of uh, coming August. You know, I want to make sure that um, from my perspective, I've also had that opportunity to lead a larger organization as a CEO uh, as well. Um, but, you know, Challenger was a great, um, you know, when you start as a startup, I've come into Active Learning Trust and, having to readjust because it's been going for some time. So there's a lot of expectations of how things were, um, a lot of things of how they were established. Um, with Challenger for the first year, um, all there was was me and a laptop and a car um, and going out to get schools that, you know, mostly schools that were in challenge and getting them to move. And within the first three years, we had two schools that were inadequate that went straight to good. Um, over the last year or so, the work that we did over that has enabled another two schools that are in the trust to go to good. And during those five years, we also had schools that went, well, we were already good, but we like what you're doing. So in Challenger, the offer was around um, character education and learning outside the classroom. And those were our kind of unique selling points. So schools that were really into, yeah, we really want to do something with, with character and we really want to do something that's engaging about music, sports, forest schools. This is the kind of trust we want to be in. Um, and so I was quite proud of, of the fact that, you know, we had something unique and different that we set up. Active Learning Trust has its own unique selling points, etc. So it's been quite interesting for me as a leader to have to adapt my style again to take mm -hmm. on board the key messages of the organisation that I've joined, but also shape it to help it develop. Certainly. So, you know, perhaps something that might be slightly, you know, potentially difficult to answer, but, you know, you, you, the role that you, you took over from, so you as a CEO from Challenger to Active Learning Trust, and um, I know there was an interim in the, in the middle, but um, you took over from a, from a CEO that tragically passed away. Um, yeah. That was, that was, that was, that was unwell. Yeah. Did that make it more difficult for you to, to come into an organization perhaps where the last CEO didn't just leave off their own accord um they had their own stamp and you know like i said tragically was was unwell and, and sadly passed away um and you had to come in and put your own stamp on things and and perhaps change things as well how 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 did you find that yeah I mean, one of the things that is quite daunting about doing that particularly um you know the the, the previous ceo gary peel was a, a guy who's highly experienced um you know had worked for, for major companies and what's quite interesting is we came from very different backgrounds so he had a kind of local government background business background local authority background worked at very high levels in local authorities um very much kind of operationally driven yeah i haven't had any of that experience or a limited experience and i come in come at it from uh, the head teacher type route so for the team it was quite a big adjustment from having somebody who said actually 
education stuff is over here and I'll deal with this stuff and me going, this is where I want to be, education stuff. Uh, and my focus is less on, less on here. And there's no right way or wrong way about that. But it, the fact that we were, had very different skill sets um, made it much easier. Uh, or made it easier for me. Yeah. Um, but the team were really good um, because, you know, they, they've had a period from the time when Gary and Tragic passed away. Um, the previous original CEO came back. <laughs> okay. Um, so there was a bit of stability. Um, but the organization itself felt ready to move. And when I was interviewed, that was quite a lot of the questioning from, you know, what my point is, you know, is this an organization that is looking to, to grow, develop, change, adapt, to a new world not that they were doing anything wrong before but actually we're in a new world yeah and, and i got a very strong sense from the staff from the head teachers and from the trustees that um yes you know the, the trust got to this point but now is a point to consolidate that um and then start to look at, at how that trust then develops over the next you know what's the next three to five years look like in a very different market um, nobody quite predicted the challenges we're facing at the moment yeah of course but you know that was that was what attracted me to it um and the the kind of ethos of the trust which is um i i say this to my head you know when i was ahead i wasn't really good at being told what to do um so when i came into to, to headship i wanted to run a school with my vision values etc etc yeah, yeah. um and i was quite resistant to being told no you have to have this strap line and you have to do it that way and you have to do it like this and i'm not saying there's not a place for that so you know there's a drive to get some kind of consistency across the map but my my view is that there's a kind of a one trust approach and that doesn't mean the one trust way there's the one trust approach which is how do we collectively agree that this is the right thing to do yeah. for the trust um, so a lot of the work I'm doing at the moment is trying to further empower the heads in the trust to make it feel like it's their trust. Right. Um, so we've got them far more involved in some of the strategic work than they have been previously. Um, we're starting to get to them to lead on some of our leadership programs and other things and starting to get them to own our kind of institute of leadership and, and teaching um, because it's their staff who are on the talent and capacity register that are delivering. So there's a kind of, you know, what I'm trying to build is ownership. Uh, of, of the mat by the by the heads and by the local governing boards as opposed to it being a, a top-down model yeah makes sense makes sense so 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 moving on a bit then um talk to me about you know some of the things that annoy you some of your bugbears <laughs> oh, how long have you got um <laughs> <laughs> so i mean the things that frustrate me i think are, are usually things that are beyond my control so um you know i i, I worry sometimes about how um some of the restrictions around the curriculum work uh, i worry given the kind of background that i have that actually there's not enough emphasis on the wider curriculum and actually i've been banging on about this for years it's only in the last kind of recent offset framework that we've suddenly this, seen this shift away from purely focusing on the core and actually saying yes children are entitled to a, to a wider curriculum which involves you know you can't get a good if you aren't doing the arts and you aren't doing your humanities and that kind of stuff so uh, it, it annoys me but actually I, I feel kind of partially vindicated that all my years of banging on about it is finally getting some recognition um and and for me sometimes that lack of you know I get it in terms of our economy that, that you know, there's not enough resource. But sometimes, you know, not having the, the where, where we see schools are in desperate need, um, not having the resources to be able to turn things around as quickly as I would like is a key issue. Um, mm -hmm. That's not to say that actually, you know, one of the 
parts of it about being a mat is to use the collective skills resources of the mat to do that so a school that if it's staying on its own will struggle by you know people coming in and, and you know providing a, a cushion around it providing support underneath it and helping it um is part of what you know i think is what we're here for yeah, 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 makes sense. Makes sense. So on the on the curriculum front, you know, so my background, I'll I'll be completely honest, I was awful in school in terms of you know my behaviour weren't was was not good. I was kicked out. Um, so I got put on early study leave. Um, so rather than expelling me because it's year eleven, just before probably about three months before the exams, um, and it had been like a I'd a, I'd a governor's meeting. I was sent to another school for two weeks, and then I. And I, then I come back and I was like, last warning, do anything else. And I think I threw a water bomb across a classroom. Um, um, and that was it, right? No, that's, you're done. You're out. I think the thing that, you know, for me, you know, clearly I wasn't stupid. Um, clearly I had skills in leadership or, or, you know, whatever it might be. Probably, perhaps I didn't realize it was at them, but um how do you support students like that, that perhaps have that kind of entrepreneurial flair about them that, you know, that, that ultimately lead, lead up to, to a life where they go, oh yeah, school was a waste of time. I didn't really start learning until I left school. Yeah. Um, Cause that's how it was for me. Um, and it's funny now that I contribute and I do stuff in, in this space. Um, and I think there's, there's actually for me a, a wider thing that, I kind of want to make a bit of a difference. And I think that curriculum for me has got to incorporate some form of kind of business or, or, and not business studies either, but, but about creativity and, and entrepreneurial flair and that, you know, mistakes are okay. And that's how we learn. Um, and that, you know, cause you made a mistake and you got a D on your maths exam. It doesn't actually really matter that much because, you know, you can go, right. Okay. Well, did I, revise as well as I should have did I set aside and you can go back on the process right and perhaps a, a 16 year old kid wouldn't necessarily think like that but at least when they get into their adult life they can so um you know curriculum and, and adding stuff to it particularly around entrepreneurship and and so on what's your thoughts on that yeah I, I've you know I've met uh millions of children like you and as you were in your youth yeah um, you know when I was heading Clapton um boys particularly were an issue and actually, I spent a lot of my time, um, you know, not giving up on, on, on individual children. So even with 1,900 children in the school, I knew in every year group who are the people who were likely to fail if we didn't engage with them. And yeah. if it meant me getting in a car with, uh, at that time, we had a, a police officer on site. You know, I had a one-year 11 boy who was really capable of getting his maths, but his life outside school was interfering. Um, you know, mum wasn't in a good place. Dad was in prison. He was living in temporary accommodation. Yeah. 8.30 in the morning, he doesn't turn up for the exam. We phone home, can't get hold. I get in a car with the police officer. We go and find him and get him in, sober him up and get him into that mass exam because he yeah. can pass. And actually, sometimes children just need, um, you know, people to have faith that they can do things. Um, and whether it's the head or whoever it is, so that relationship between the teacher and the pupil is key but you've got to have the right curriculum as well and you know one of the things that disturbed me slightly about the EBAC and I'm not anti-academic in that sense at all but some of the the subjects that children really really kind of got on with some of the more vocational subjects went 
um, and or were not there, but not as valued. Yeah, that was a big issue for me about kind of you know have we got the right diet for some of these children? And that's not to say that they should not have access to the the best literature, the best science, etc. But there needs to be a balance. And for somebody like me, uh, I guess like you, um, after I probably shouldn't confess this on here, but you know I was excluded from school for a, a, a number of times, yeah, and for poor behaviour, yeah, um, and it's because I was disengaged from the curriculum. So for me, it's it's trying to find if we can't get it into the curriculum. What are those other things? So, for example, in one of our primary schools in, in Challenger, we introduced in the primary school financial education. Okay. So the children, as part of the work that they do, um, have to run their own bank. Oh. Uh, so, and it's a real bank. Yeah. So do it with uh, as part of a social enterprise. So we have uh, a proper uh, bank come in once a week, collect the money, all that kind of stuff. Um, each class has its own bank account. They have to create their own projects and they have to cost them all out. They have to make a product. They have to sell it to their parents yeah, and they have, to, they have to do that. And they're, they're able to, if they say, look, we need to take out a loan because we think we can do this, but we're going to return X amount yeah, yeah, yeah. Put interest on it. Then actually, um, you know, some of the classes are, were rolling around six, seven hundred pounds each in profits or all, all their parents' money and grandparents' money where they fleeced them to buy stuff. Yeah. But, you know, that kind of thing has spurred a lot of children when they went into secondary school to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, and some of the models I had, uh, I was working with in the early days of studio schools were fantastic for doing that. So we had children um, who were at risk of being excluded from school for poor behaviour, um, who were um, going out, um, going to wholesalers at this time, picking up vegetables that were about to be trashed, putting them into vegetable boxes, and then selling them to the local community um, and delivering them. So for the elder people in, in, in Clapton who couldn't get out, they could have a veg box delivered to their house by our kids in a minibus. And yeah. they made a profit on, on that. They were using the surplus stuff to make smoothies for Essex Uni students on a Saturday morning. Um, and you know, even at Christmas, they'd, they'd worked out that um, people would start eating food off, off tiles. And they had the tech back at the school to be able to engrave the tiles. So they went out on Saturdays to a farmer's markets and said, would you like an engraved tile for Christmas with Happy Christmas in your family name? The tiles cost peanuts. It cost them nothing to do it, but they were making sort of five, ten pounds per slate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's entrepreneurial skills. Yeah, this is, the, yeah. John Harford, roll it out nationally. Get it on the curriculum. And, you know, I went, this is really bizarre. So we had one child there that uh, as part of the enterprise skills, um, he'd been a child at risk of exclusion. Um, he had a hearing impairment and he was at risk of being thrown out of school because he wouldn't wear his hearing aid. Right, okay. Came, you know, he was getting bullied, came yeah. to, the, to our school. Um, we got him, they had to have one day a week work experience and he went to, to uh, a butcher's for his work experience. After, they said to him, you've got to put your hearing aid in because customers can't hear you. And in the end, after building his confidence, his, his enterprise project, he was taking, buying meat wholesale, Saturday going to a farmer's market and running a, a, yeah, a hot dog beef That's store. Right. Yeah, yeah. Then got an apprenticeship. Um, and left. And yeah. actually, he's, bizarrely, I went to the butchers a week or so ago. He went, hello, Mr. Chamberlain. This is six years on. He said, I'm now starting to run my own business, etc." Now, that's the kind of thing, yeah, all for, for academia as well. But, you know, you've also got to take care of those children who, you know,
if it's not going to happen in the lessons, you've got to find other ways of giving them opportunities to succeed. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. I love that. I love that. And I think that there's, you know, such a high percentage of students that fall in that bracket. Um, and I think because the job market is slightly buoyant now, you know, may well be during after the pandemic, but, you know, as, as employment opportunities increase, I, I'm a big fan of the apprenticeship route. I think that's a really important yeah. route. Um, and we need to do more in schools to actually engage with that. So we're working with a company in Cambridge who um, are Queen's uh, Award for Industry. They make um, all sorts of um, sort of kit for um, scanners for hospitals and that kind of stuff. Yep. But they want to do some advanced engineering and manufacturing. And they're saying, actually, we do some apprenticeships. We want to expand. Can we work with you on that? Can we set up an apprenticeship centre? I'm like, yeah, we'll work with you on that. Yep. Uh, because um, in that part of Cambridgeshire in the Fens, there's not that many opportunities for them to do high level engineering. So this isn't just kind of, you know, mechanical engineering car type stuff. This is top level engineering that could take them globally. So, you know, the more we as, as an education sector engage with business and actually learn from business, the better we will be in terms of serving uh, our young people. If you come up my roots, I've never, you know, I had to learn how to run a 14, 15 million pound business yeah, of course. Uh, because I came up an education route. But I've learned that by working with good business managers, good business people who actually have taught me the skills I need to be an effective CEO. Sure, sure. Makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. So let's, let's move on again. Let's move to more, you know, you, 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 and, you and, and kind of you as a person and your personal life. So I think it's fair to say you've got a job with, with pressure um um you know what what do you do to unwind and relax um well it's back to that kind of music stuff again so yeah. you know, um so you definitely didn't mention tottenham there because that, that wouldn't be relaxing no no that's uh, that's a whole new ball game <laughs> uh, you know for, for me personally the music has always been my kind of you know, go-to place to help me de-stress. The fact that I've got two daughters, uh, my wife's a musician, uh, head of music in a school. Uh, both my daughters play cello like their dads. They play to quite a high level. And actually I get a chance to kind of, um, much as they hate it, you know, get involved in some of the work that they're doing with different uh, ensembles, groups. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of my way of, of, of kind of, you know, I still play in, play in orchestras, I still conduct every now and then, uh, occasionally pop back into a, into a West End pit to play, um, just to kind of keep my hand in um, with some of my contacts. But that gives me that kind of balance in my life between the two. And that gives you a bit of a buzz as well. Yeah. And also, you know, I have to remember that, uh, you know, it's very important, like any skill that you have, that, um, you know, you don't let it go. Um, so I'm certainly not as good as I used to be. Um, and now my daughters can play pieces that I used to be able to play quite well. Yeah. Um, they play better now by any chance or? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> I never admit that. But um, yeah, they are. And, and for me, just having that thing that I share with them is really, really important. Yeah, I bet it's, it's good for your relationship with them as well. You know, I've, I've got, so you, you, I've got three daughters, um, one being one month old. So um, yeah, I've got, you know, all of this to look forward to. Though I don't play an instrument. Um, but actually, it was on my um, New Year's... Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, resolution. Uh, yeah, that's it. New Year's resolution, that's the one. Um, so I wanted to, to start playing an instrument this year and read a certain amount of books and other things as well. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah. so I will do it, um, but... Not right now, when the time's right. And it works the other way as well. So whilst you know, mine have, have followed me into music, one of my daughters is really into, eldest daughter a couple of years ago was really into cheerleading, competing at a quite high level. 
quite into athletics and stuff. And so my kind of personal challenge, you know, I'm 54, I started running. Now, the only thing I've ever run for is a bus. Um, but, you know, because my wife and daughters were kind of into that, you know, I've set my own kind of challenge. So over the last six, seven months, I've been doing kind of, you know, running with a club. Um, and over the last few few weeks where I've been able to kind of get up early and, and then come back to work, I've been able to run a 3K, a 5K and set myself uh, running a 10k now the races I set myself were obviously were cancelled but I've now I now can run a 10k fairly you know not not easily but good yeah. enough to do it every couple of weeks yeah yeah it's weird you said that so I, so I started running um so you know when they've done the 5k for the NHS so you had to yeah. donate five run five and nominate yeah. five yeah so I so I done that and I ran 36 minutes the first time. I'd never, never run before. I'd never run a distance. Apart, you know, I'd played sport when I was younger, and but I'd never run, you know, a 5K before. And it was so hard. It was so, so hard. Um, and I thought, and I was, you know, my mates had gone sub 30, and I was so, like, embarrassed that I was, like, the fattest and the slowest um, that, I, uh, that I'd done it again, and I got it down to 32, and I'd done it again, and I got it down to, like, just, just shy of... 30 um and then i spoke to a, a like a running coach and i said you know he just inquired with him and it was 10 pound for a month of like a running pro program so i thought well just out of curiosity what you get i'd pay a tenner um and uh and yes yeah, so i'd done my first 10k sunday before last um yeah. and yeah an hour and nine minutes i've done it in um and i've got my 5k down to 27 minutes but it's brilliant isn't it you know it's such a it's such a that's my way at the moment between music and running. So it's like, because I do it with my wife, we go out to, you know, we've been able to do it on our own, which is yeah. um, because we have something to do together. But when we were going off in the uh, running club on a Sunday morning and being part of that running club where we did, uh, you know, Santa and reindeer race at Christmas, we've, we had a, a virtual, the uh, Ekaden relay, virtual relay. So we were in a virtual team where we had to go and run 5K and get the best time. So it's been, it's been again over the last few months something of a different focus to take that stress, you know, the, the stress of work, and we yeah. had to just go and run it out or play it out in terms of music. Is, is yeah, yeah, definitely. Do you listen to podcasts when you when you're running, or do you listen to music? Um, I don't actually listen to anything when I run. I, I just like to the silence and the run. Uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts and music in the car because obviously yeah. I'm, I'm a, yeah, spend a bit of my time in the car with 21 School, so that's yeah. a good time catch up on, on kind of podcasts and other stuff as well. So yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I see. I I struggle to run some music, but um, I I I enjoy running to podcasts because I can just so zone out and I can just um you know get into it and then I forget. I've got the pace of saying right, you've just done another K and it was this time, this time. And, yeah, I just like the I, I just like the silence. Yeah, go off at daylight when it's sunny. It's just great to go out and where there's fewer cars about at the moment. Just enjoy the bird song, everything else in the morning. It's, it's, watch the sun come up. It's lovely. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. No, lovely. Um, okay, well, look, um, I think, you know, we've covered an awful lot um, and it's been a, a fascinating conversation with you. Um, I want to ask one question that's a bit left field and, 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 it, and it puts you in a hypothetical situation. Okay. Okay. So um, you're no longer a CEO of a multi-academy trust. You are now the chairman of a global consumer products company. Yeah. Um, and as a chairman, you've just had um, your board walk out and you've got to assemble a new board and you're down to your last three hires that you've got to, you've got to put in place. Um, you've got to put in a CEO, you've got to put in a chief marketing officer and you've got to put in a chief commercial officer and you've got a new product that 
potentially could change the world. It's, it, it could potentially be huge. So um, you've got to choose, you can choose anyone dead or alive, dead or alive from history. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be people you've worked with. It can be celebrities, entrepreneurs, famous people, et cetera, et cetera. But who's your board and why? So a CEO, a chief marketing officer and a chief commercial officer. Yeah. Okay. So let me have a think. If I was going for kind of CEO, I'd want somebody with that real kind of communication skill. Um, I think somebody I always uh, admired kind of growing up, um, particularly from, from you know, what went on in Tottenham in my youth was somebody like Nelson Mandela. Yeah. Kind of had that ability to communicate with everybody. Um, you know, really good at kind of getting that sense of, of, of vision and yep. real moral compass, you know, and it would either be him or kind of Martin Luther King, people that really have a moral purpose and are able to communicate to, to a huge range of audiences. And I think, you know, yep. obviously with things happening in the world at the moment, that's kind of in my mind that, you know, yeah. people who can reach, reach everybody. Yeah. Um, in that way. Um, I think if I was going for kind of the financial stuff, I'd be looking for um, yeah, probably your, your Steve Jobs or your, uh, your kind of Elon Musk, maybe not with the same temperament, but certainly that ability to be entrepreneurial and to, to see opportunities and to, to, to drag those kind of, you know, you know, if you can put two men in space, um, you know, and you're that determined, then yeah, okay, that's 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 where you, you kind of need to be. But you know, yeah. you've got to have the commercial savvy to 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 be able to do do that and manage the finances to get you there. Yeah. In terms of delivering operationally, um, you know, there, there's so many people I've worked with who are really really good. Um, I think if I was going for it on a on a business front. I kind of like the, the, the approach that I know they're entrepreneurial as well, but uh, like the dragon's den type approach. So something like Deborah Meaden, yeah, who, who kind of has uh, nothing against the other dragons, um, but you know, somebody who has that ability to kind of see through things, but also has a real focus on the detail of the operation yeah. as well. Yeah, you wouldn't so, want to mess with her, would you? No, and she's somebody that, you know, you're going to have to work quite hard. If you're, if, if, she, if she's operational, then you'll do as you're told. So yeah. it's going to have somebody with a bit of an edge as well yeah. as uh, the launch. You, you can't just do operations without having an eye on the finance. And you can't do operations without having a sense of the detail. Yeah, of um, But you've also got to be, sometimes operations can be quite dull. Whereas I think actually, if you're doing them well, it can be quite creative. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that is, that is some board. So, so you're going for Nelson Mandela. Was yeah. it Steve Jobs or Elon Musk you was going for? You know, at the moment, I, I like what the kind of the whole Steve Jobs stuff, the Apple type stuff, a bit of an Apple fan. So I'd probably go for Steve Jobs on that yeah. bit. Elon Musk's in a bit, bit of a kind of yeah. place. But yeah, in terms of getting a, what I like about it is, is take something simple, make it work. Yeah, 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 of course. Simplicity is key, I think, in, in business and in life. So, so I hear that. Um, and so, and Deborah Meadens, that, that would be some incredible board. Um, it, would yeah, it, would it, it would be. It would be. In fact, I might write to them and ask them if they want to join my board. <laughs> I think you might struggle with Steve Jobs, to be fair. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and Nelson. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah indeed. I'll, I'll try and get Deborah Meadens on board. There we go. There we go. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure, Stephen, uh, finding out the person behind the job title. Um, and I've really enjoyed the conversation and uh, yeah, likewise yeah uh, nice to talk to you um you know always happy to work uh, with with any organization that's supporting education and prepared as you said to to, to make a difference uh, really happy to talk to you brilliant thanks mate